You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to be looking together at chapter 26 and verses 26 through 32. You're going to find this on page 935 of the Pew Bible. This is Paul's defense before a gathered assembly, and we're looking at Acts chapter 26, verses 26 through 32. I'd like us to begin reading at verse 24. Hear the word of God. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Most of you have probably seen on TV the annual State of the Union address. It is a report given by our president every year in the House of Representatives. In attendance, are all sorts of important people, both in and out of government, senators, congressmen, Supreme Court justices, high-ranking dignitaries of all kinds. And the president stands on the dais at the podium to deliver his speech. And I think that scene is similar in pomp and circumstance to that of this scene in Caesarea. Here, the Apostle Paul is standing alone to give his defense before a gathered assembly. And the stateliness and the ceremony are comparable, I believe, to the State of the Union Address. Can you imagine this lone Christian preacher, small of stature, weak in constitution, lacking in eloquence, accused of crimes against the state, standing before this imposing assembly like one, like the one in Washington, D.C. 
I want you to try to picture him boldly speaking to them about Christ crucified and risen. And of course, it was for this that Jesus commissioned him as an apostle, wasn't it? Christ himself said to Paul, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So Paul is bearing witness to Christ before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and the entire gathered assembly. You may remember how Festus called Paul crazy for preaching the risen Christ. And there I think Festus illustrated the blind ignorance of the typically arrogant Gentile mind. Cross is foolish. Makes no sense. Jesus of Nazareth was a failure. We all know that. He died a criminal's death, and to tout him as the Savior is utterly absurd. Well, today we find King Agrippa illustrating the proud unbelief of skeptical Judaism. You have the blind ignorance of the Gentile and the proud unbelief of the Jew. To the cynical, unbelieving Jewish heart, the gospel's a stumbling block. When Festus said it was folly, Paul turns to Agrippa to get a response. After all, King Agrippa was well-versed in the Jewish faith and practices. He had even become familiar, apparently, with the events of Christ's death and life. He knew the scriptures. He knew about the Jewish hope of the resurrection. The facts about Christ were public. They had not been done in a corner. So Paul asks him point blank, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. What boldness he had here, I think. He was pressing the king for a judgment. He was pressing the king for his conversion. He was imploring him on behalf of Christ. And yet, Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, I'm almost persuaded, Paul, but not yet. I'm intrigued, but I cannot believe. And here we have an example of the almost Christian. Near the kingdom, but not in. And I do think King Agrippa represents the Jewish response to the gospel. They were God's people. The prophets had been sent to them. The Christ was their Messiah. His resurrection fulfilled their hope, and yet they remained skeptical and unbelieving. In fact, the gospel was to them a stumbling block. You know what that is, a rock of offense that you can't get over? Like so many Jews, King Agrippa turned his back on the light and rejected Christ. Jesus came to his own, John says, and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because Agrippa loved the darkness rather than the light. And it's likely that Agrippa died without hope. Jesus told us that all sinners who live apart from him are condemned already. That's what he said. That's the reality. It's both true and it's tragic. And it's true of the majority of mankind. But those on whom the light shines and yet remain unbelieving, 
are worse off. Because theirs is not only condemnation, no, it's aggravated condemnation. Their sin of unbelief is far more heinous. Why? Because they've seen the light shine. The Son of Righteousness has risen. The glad tidings have been proclaimed, and yet they love the darkness. In John 3, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. You know, there are all kinds of people who sin out of ignorance. And that's bad. That's bad. But Agrippa sinned against the light, and that's worse. He saw the light and he rejected it. He heard the free offer and he refused it. One would think that the offer of a pardon for guilty sinners would be welcomed. We would expect a condemned criminal to rejoice over such a thing, wouldn't you? Here's an opportunity to be acquitted from the guilt and the punishment of your sin. Here's an opportunity to put on the royal robes of Christ's righteousness. You don't deserve it, neither do I. It's free. It's received at no other cost than simple acceptance. That's all you have to do. And one would think that such an offer, an incredible offer, would be received with rejoicing. But Scripture teaches, and I think our experience confirms, that sinners still reject the gospel. And unless God changes their hearts and enlightens their minds, they will choose the darkness. The innate pride that I struggle with, the innate unbelief, and the human soul keeps them from embracing the gospel. And yet Agrippa hinted at that he was almost persuaded, an almost Christian. Yes, Paul, it's interesting. It's intriguing to be sure. It's a diversion from my ordinary thinking. But I will not believe. I refuse Christ. I'm turning away from the light. And of course, this aggravated his guilt and made his sin more heinous and ultimately his penalty more severe. Do you remember the scribe who asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? He agreed, you know, with the answer that Jesus gave him. And then our Lord made this observation. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're so close. There's discernment. You're making some use of the light you've been given. And if by the grace of God, the Spirit gives you new birth, you'll enter that kingdom. But at that moment, that man was still outside. Near, but not in. And what good is that? We're not playing horseshoes here. This is not a game. The stakes are high. Life and death. Near, but not in. Almost Christian. Close to being persuaded. He's still damned. 
I wonder how many here sit under the light of God's word week after week and remain outside. You're not far from the kingdom. You've had the privilege of light. What are you doing with it? Do you not see the parallel here between your experience and that of King Agrippa? I want us to consider this a little more closely under three headings. First, there is the heinousness of unbelief. Shockingly evil. Hatefully wicked. Something that is heinous, that word heinous, is exceptionally sinful. That's what it means. It's in God's mind an abomination. That's heinous. And the sin of those who neglect or reject or abuse the light of Christ, we're taught, is heinous. Think of it. God in his providence provides the means of hearing the gospel. The knowledge of Jesus is proclaimed. Sinners hear the good news of salvation. But in response, those very sinners choose the darkness over the light, and it is shockingly evil. The apostle says they've trampled underfoot the Son of God and have profaned the blood of the covenant. You must know that most of Christ's miracles were performed within the confines of the city of Capernaum, up by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you, Capernaum. My question is, why? Why is that? Why is it more tolerable for Sodom of all places than Capernaum? Well, because Christ had been teaching in Capernaum. He, people have been getting healed. The light had been shining. And our Lord says that if those very means had been used in Sodom, that wicked city would have been saved. If those very means have been used in Sodom, the gospel advantages that are abused will sink proud sinners far lower in the pit of hell. That's the teaching of Scripture. And some think that if I only attend church, if I can sit in the pew on Sunday after Sunday, it's all going to work out. But you know something, as Agrippa teaches us, outward privileges only aggravate guilt if we do not find Christ in them. We may not oppose the gospel, and yet we don't do anything with the gospel. And I would have to say to you, to be true to my calling, that neglect and indifference are just as blameworthy as outright rejection. You know the history of Sodom. It was a wicked city. It was destroyed by fire and brimstone. The Sodomites will have many things for which they have to give an answer. But you know something? They will not give an answer for the sin of neglecting the gospel. It is a heinous sin to reject the light of Christ and the sound teaching of your parents and the biblical teaching of your church. 
Paul teaches that to sin in ignorance is not as bad as sin against the light. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 2. It says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. None of the rulers of this age understood this, ignorant. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you hear what he's saying? If they had known the wisdom of God, if they had heard gospel teaching and preaching, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. The light would have been a restraint to keep them from committing a monstrous crime. It may not have converted them, but it would have restrained them. It was in the absence of light that they nailed Jesus to a tree. The light of God's word acts as a restraint by exposing the dangers of sin. I was recently in a conversation with two men. One of them I was meeting for the very first time. The other man, a friend of mine, introduced me to him as a pastor. And you know what happens then. Of course, the first one said, oh, I'm not going to swear then. Why not? Why not swear? He's not a Christian. He doesn't pray or read his Bible or go to worship. Why curb his tongue? Well, because Christ's minister acts as a restraint, a form of restraint. Deep inside, his conscience knows that to take the name of the Lord, name of the Lord in vain is a sin. And when he's not around the pastor, with the restraint removed, he swears. The same thing happened when I once played, I've only played golf like six times in my life, but the same thing happened when I once played golf with a group of men. Up until the fifth or sixth hole, they swore like sailors. Uh, sorry, Rob, I've never heard you swear, but okay. They swore like crazy until they learned that I was a pastor, right? Seventh hole. And their embarrassment was palpable. They sensed the shame. Their conscience bothered them. They felt bad in the presence of a minister of Christ. In the same way, the light of God's word exerts a restraining influence. It's heinous to sin against the light of God's word. My point is to sit in church, to hear the word, and to remain indifferent is heinous. J.C. Ryle says, the brighter the light, the greater the guilt of him who rejects it. Some people live their whole lives simply trying not to rock the boat. A vain attempt to be neutral. But you know what Jesus says? Whoever is not with me is against me. Do you see? It's impossible to be neutral with regard to Jesus Christ. You can't steer a middle ground. You are either on one side or the other. You may not think you're as bad as others, but you realize that you're not a saint. You feel the truth of the gospel, but for some reason you will not embrace it. And because you have these feelings inside, you think you're not as bad as others. 
but you have not and you will not stand for Christ and confess him before men. And our Lord says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I think the clear implication of that is that no profession of faith is a practical denial of Christ. A person just says nothing. There are only two sides. There is no middle ground. You are either for him or against him. And the question is, which side have you chosen? Which, whose interests are you serving? You know, it's possible to be against Christ either by enmity or indifference. Either way, hostility or lack of interest. Neutrality is impossible. That's the first point. The heinousness of the sin of unbelief. But the second one is this. The punishment for unbelief is incredibly severe. I'm not trying to be a downer, but this is true. When, the, when living under the light of the gospel of Christ, the punishment is severe. John Flavel, one of my heroes, describes this as a naked sin. Why, John? Why would you describe that as a naked sin? Well, because no ignorance can cover the motive. You've been given the light of the scriptures. You're not ignorant. And the word of God strips bare the motives and reveals the innate love of sin for sin's sake. You can't plead ignorance because the light of his word has informed your conscience. And the person won't forsake his sin because he loves his sin. He cannot and he will not part with it. That was Agrippa, you know. That was King Agrippa. He knew the prophets. He heard Christ, or at least about him, and yet he loved his sin. And the apostle says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins. And I think the most vivid illustration of this truth is the betrayer himself, Judas Iscariot. What a study. He should have embraced the gospel. He was in the presence of truth itself. But even with the light of Christ shining on him daily, he was unbelieving. And then, of course, he committed the most heinous crime of all of betraying our Lord. And that's when Jesus says, the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So wicked was his crime against the light, it would have been better off if he never lived. Turning away from or neglecting the light is worthy of harsh punishment. Perhaps you recall the parable of Jesus that was told about the master that our elder read this morning. It says, The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will receive a severe beating. You see, the ultimate judge is going to distinguish between sinners. Those that sin against the light will be deeper in hell than those who sin in ignorance. The pagan with only the light of nature will be punished for his transgressions. 
But the churchgoer who neglects the gospel will endure far greater wrath. If God gives us the opportunity of hearing and embracing the gospel, it's a blessing. But he does not take it lightly if people ignore or scoff at the free offer. It disparages his son. It grieves his spirit. It brings reproach upon the name. That's the second point. But then third, and a little more positive, there is the offer of the gospel, a free pardon for all our sins. And despite Agrippa's implicit rejection, Paul did proclaim the gospel of truth. The invitation was given. The herald did his job. Christ was offered to the hearers. And as long as it's called today, so stands the free offer of salvation in Christ. The more we know, the greater the privilege as well as the responsibility. You and I here today have been blessed with countless opportunities to hear the gospel, haven't we? God has richly blessed us by revealing to us the plan of redemption. You know, we have access to an unimaginable wealth of Christian truth in this country. And how thankful we should be, and I know that many, if not all of you, are thankful for that. But I wonder if there remain those who are indifferent, who are unmoved, who remain cold and apathetic, And when you look at your own heart, you say something like this, I just don't feel it. It's not in my heart. Okay, understood. But you can do something. If you sense the danger, if you have a sincere desire to escape wrath, then apply yourself as you can. Try to concentrate as best you can upon the reading of the scripture, the preaching, the praying, the sinning, the confessing, and ask God to use these things, these ordinary activities, to enlighten your mind. As James says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Because it's according to the psalmist, the fool says in his heart, no God for me. Psalm 14.1, no God for me. He's a fool. Maybe not in his own eyes, but in the eyes of God. There are various kinds of atheists, you know. There's an atheist in desire who is one who wishes there's no God. He'd be happy if there was no God. That's an atheist in desire. There's an atheist in practice who claims faith in God, but lives as if there is no God. So an atheist in desire, an atheist in practice, and then an atheist in belief who's so darkened and so seared that he actually foolishly denies the existence of God. And that's a very, very small minority who really try to think that there's no God, no judge, no reckoning. But conscience says differently, especially when death draws near. All three of these atheists are fools. The story is told, it's a little bit humorous, but a story is told of an atheist who was complaining to his friend and saying, the problem with you Christians is that you have monopolized all the holidays. 
You have Christmas, Easter, Good Friday, All Saints Day, and the like. What we atheists need is a holiday all our own. And with a wry smile on his face, his companion countered by saying, how about April 1st? I think we should make the best use of the light we've been given and strive to enter the kingdom. This is what Isaiah says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him to our God. He'll abundantly pardon. There are two kinds of seekers. One true, one false. Two kinds. The true seeker is a born-again believer who loves Jesus. And to him, Christ says, seek and you will find, knock, and it'll be open to you. He's a sincere Christian who enjoys rich, sweet communion with the Lord. That's a true seeker. He's seeking the Lord. The false seeker is one who doesn't love Jesus, hates God, will not bend the knee. But, like every other human being, this false seeker loves himself and doesn't want to go to hell. He knows enough of revealed truth to anticipate the day of reckoning. And selfishly, he doesn't want to suffer under God's endless and infinite wrath. He's not pretending. No. He's not trying to fool God. He feels the dread of judgment. Either in church or from the Bible, he recognized the severity of divine justice, that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this seeker is false because he's not seeking the Lord, but he's trying to save his own skin. And for them, for him, there's hope. And I think he should be frank. I think he should simply explain himself by saying something like this. God, I don't love you. I don't trust you. I have not received Jesus. But I'm scared silly to lose my soul in everlasting perdition. So I'm in church I'm listening to the preaching and the prayers. I'm hearing the songs. I'm watching the supper. God, I don't want to go to hell. So please, extend mercy to me and enlighten my mind and renew my heart. Give me faith and save my soul. And you know something in that case? God just might see fit to bestow saving grace on you. Because you see, each one of us has only a few short years to consider the gospel offer. And if you're still on the fence, if you're still unsure, if you're still unbelieving, just be honest. Be honest with God. He can handle it. The Lord himself exhorts you to seek from him the grace that you need. I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And he's an excellent physician. So attend the gospel ordinances and diligently do so. Consider what you hear. Ponder the truth that's presented. 
Let your thoughts muse even a little bit over the things that you see. The blind beggar Bartimaeus was crying out to Jesus for him to have mercy. And Jesus said to him, what do you want for me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. So do as that poor man did and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. And if by his spirit Christ is pleased to give it, well, then bless him for it. But if you're a believer, then strive to grow in your understanding of spiritual things. Because the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. If the amount of light that you have right now is edifying, what would it be to have more? The wisdom of God revives the soul and makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart. And it's an inexhaustible and enriching source of truth. I'm going to close with a story that Beth Ann Lloyd-Jones, the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells of Staffordshire Bill. After a life of drunkenness, he was converted under her husband's ministry. Wonderful. Bill had spent years fighting, swearing, drinking, and being just utterly wicked. So unpleasant was Bill that even his unconverted friends couldn't stand him. Then at the age of 70, he was converted. And he thoroughly delighted in the things of Christ. And now he thought, Staffordshire Bill, he thought nothing of trudging three uphill miles to attend the church service. And this is because in his heart, he had shined the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He attended every meeting of the church, twice on Sunday, Monday night prayer, Wednesday night study, Saturday night Christian fellowship. He was there, Staffordshire Bill. And he was deeply ashamed of his past. But he was also full of inexpressible joy. And what little light he had obtained, he put to good use and he bore much fruit for three years. In just three years after becoming a Christian, old Bill died in joy and perfect peace. And my question is this. If you died tonight, would I be able to say the same thing about you? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light that you've given to us. We recognize that it is an immense privilege and at the same time brings immense responsibility. We pray that you'll help us to use the light you've given to good purpose, that if there are those in our midst who have yet to embrace Christ, that you would enable them to do so today. And for the rest, please continue to help us grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.